With just a few days left in June, I know that some of us are barely hanging on. The post-Pride hangover is no joke. As a recovery mentor, I understand that sobriety is not just black or white, and recovery definitely doesn't look the same for everyone. As long as we're cutting out a few drinks and decreasing the substance that creates our anxiety, that's progress to me. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Sunnyside to shed some light on mindful drinking. Create your own recovery and join me for the post-Pride Cleanse. It's time to revive and thrive, my friends. Click the link in today's show notes for your free 30-day challenge. You can track your progress with our community, and there's a chance to win some cool prizes. We can all shake the glitter out of our hair and other regions together. Let's revive and thrive. Click the link in today's show notes for the post-Pride Cleanse today. Hey, want to start a podcast? Spotify has a platform that allows you to create one so easily you won't believe it. And the best part, it's totally free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters allows you to record, edit, and distribute your episodes right from your phone or computer. You can also add songs from Spotify's library, edit with cool transitions, and then hear your show on all the big networks, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. You can also earn money through ads and subscriptions. And once again, for those in the back, it's completely free with no catch. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, a recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink, a recovery mentor and podcast producer. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you those who live them. Please share this podcast with anyone who may need it today. And with that, let's open the diary on episode 90 of the Sobriety Diaries. Welcome back to the Sobriety Diaries. I am here with my friend, Jay Keefe. Hi, Jay. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. Where are you zooming in from tonight? Currently, I am in Boston, Massachusetts. And is that home base for you? It is. Let's sort of start where you want to start and, and wherever makes sense to get a better understanding of Jay and walk us through your story a bit. Sure. I grew up just south of Boston. Grew up in a loving, caring home, with loving, caring parents. Everything I've ever needed or wanted was provided for. And... I had my first drink as a freshman in high school. It instantly changed my outlook on life. I was a very shy kid, very introverted, average student, average athlete, a middle child. And I remember uh, three friends and us, three friends and I split a case of Miller Lite. So we had six beers each. <laughs> An older friend bought it for us. 
he kind of supervised us. We sat around his kitchen table playing drinking games. It was a September evening. And by the third beer, I felt incredible. I felt taller, smarter, funnier, more engaging. I wasn't nervously, you know, playing with my face. I wasn't looking around in an agitated state. I was just, I was very calm. And I, 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 I'll never forget that feeling. And once I achieved that feeling and the night was over, I couldn't wait to do it again. And I chased that feeling for the next 20 plus years to try to duplicate it. I became a weekend warrior, so to speak, where, you know, every Friday and Saturday we drink and that turned into Sundays. And I remember being in high school, you know, Monday mornings I'd be in school and all I would think about all week was where are we going to get the booze? Who's going to get it? Where are we going to drink? How much can we get? And I was restless and irritable all week, obsessing about that alcohol. And then that turned my addiction, my alcoholism progressed pretty quickly where I was now drinking three or four days a week. You know, it wasn't just Friday and Saturday. It was Thursday through Sunday. I told myself I didn't have a problem because I would take, you know, Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. Graduated high school. And when most people either go to school, join the army or get a job. I did nothing for a year other than drink. And that was kind of a sign. You know, I, I, I was watching other people, you know, kind of move on to the next phase of their lives. And I wasn't doing that and I was okay with it. I kept telling myself, I'll go, I'll go to college. Eventually I did go to college. I never finished. And right around the time I was in my early 20s, I got a job, a really good job, a union job with the utility company. And I very quickly learned that all I had to do at that job was show up mm. and I'd get paid. I didn't have to do much of anything. And I took full advantage of that as an alcoholic. Did you find that you were surrounding yourself with like-minded people, partiers and, and people that drank uh, like you did at this time in your life? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a blue collar union job, you know, rough and tumble guys. A lot of them would drink on the job and I absolutely found myself gravitating towards those guys mm. and it, it became a nightly occurrence every single night. Um, my shift at the time was noon to eight. So, and the, all the bosses would leave around four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So for three hours, we kind of had, you know, free will to do whatever we wanted. Uh oh, look out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we took, I took full advantage of that. And then even, even the guys, even the heavy drinkers that I were working with, um, they kind of noticed like 
we don't need to do this five days a week. You know, Thursday, maybe Friday, we get it. But I wanted to do it every night. And that's when I really found myself drinking alone as I was working. You know, I do the job I was supposed to do. And then, you know, at the time we covered the entire city of Boston and Cambridge. And there's a bar on every corner. So as long as my work truck was parked where it was supposed to be, I'd walk right to a bar and I'd start. And that escalated to the point where I just, I, I just I showed up and didn't really do any work. Uh, I got suspended several times. I actually lost my job once. They fired me, but I got it back because it's a union job and it's really hard to get fired from. Yeah. And at that point, I had met a woman. We had fallen in love. She was a few years older than me, and she had three young kids. And so now, not only am I a budding alcoholic, but I'm a budding alcoholic responsible for three children who were one, three, and six at the time when I met them. And, you know, again, the progression just got worse and worse and worse. And then I started becoming a blackout drinker. I drunk, I um, drove drunk all the time. And here's where my story's a little different, not necessarily different, but interesting, whereas nobody ever knew I was drunk. I didn't slur my words. I didn't get violent. I never got into any trouble. I never got a um, DUI. I never got into fights. I would just become a little bit happier until the point where I blacked out. And when I blacked out, I have no idea what happened. But there are hundreds and hundreds of mornings where I'd wake up, have no idea where I was, have no idea how I got home. And I would literally have to go out to my driveway to make sure A, my car was there, B, there was no damage to it, and C, that there was no blood on it, that I hadn't mm. hit anybody. Wow. <clears throat> and, and that... I kept telling myself that I don't have a problem because I'm a functioning alcoholic. Right. I pay, I get up, I pay the bills. Uh, I didn't hurt anybody. I wasn't hurting anyone. You know, I worked hard, so I deserved to drink that whole rationalization. And then I realized that I could stop whenever I wanted. I don't, I don't have a problem. I can stop. And I did stop. I stopped all the time. My issue as an alcoholic is I couldn't stay stopped. I would tell myself, I'm not going to drink for a week. I'm not going to drink for a month. I'm going to take X, Y, and Z day off. And I did that. What I also realized rather quickly was when I did take days off from drinking, I certainly wasn't living a life of recovery. I was just a dry drunk and irritable and, and angry and short-tempered because all I was doing was obsessing about drinking again and when I could do it. So it was rationalizing. Let me take a few days off. I'll give my liver a rest. I'll behave. But then sure enough, it'd be like, all right, it's been long enough. I need to drink again. Was anyone in your life expressing concern at this point? Other than my, my ex-wife, who I was obviously then married to, my family had no idea. You know, they knew I liked the party. Um, 
I have a very big family. When we get together, it was usually for, you know, joyous occasions, 4th of July, birthday parties, Christmas, whatever. So it was normal right. to drink. And like I said, I, I, never, I, I never got to the point where I wasn't stumbling. I wasn't falling on things, breaking things. People knew I drank a lot, but they didn't, because I was so good natured, so to speak, they didn't think there was an issue with it. And like I said, because I was going to work, I was paying the bills. It was just almost like a rite of passage and just kind of what you did. With just a few days left in June, I know that some of us are barely hanging on. The post-Pride hangover is no joke. As a recovery mentor, I understand that sobriety is not just black or white, and recovery definitely doesn't look the same for everyone. As long as we're cutting out a few drinks and decreasing the substance that creates our anxiety, that's progress to me. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Sunnyside to shed some light on mindful drinking. Create your own recovery and join me for the post-Pride Cleanse. It's time to revive and thrive, my friends. Click the link in today's show notes for your free 30-day challenge. You can track your progress with our community, and there's a chance to win some cool prizes. We can all shake the glitter out of our hair and other regions together. Let's revive and thrive. Click the link in today's show notes for the post-Pride Cleanse today. I became a daily drinker. I was a horrible employee. I lost my sense of morals, so to speak. I didn't have any morals. All I can, all I cared about and all I um, was consumed with was the thought of drinking more alcohol. And no matter where I was, who I was with, how much I had, I'll never forget this. I was always afraid of running out. I could have cases and cases and bottles and bottles and bottles. Oh, we got to go to the store and get more. We got to go to the store and get more. Same. Like I needed a stockpile in case there was a day or a week that I couldn't get to the store. I I couldn't sleep if I knew that I was running low. Same. Yeah. I think that's a common thread with a lot of us. Yeah. Here in Massachusetts at the time, back when I was in my 20s and early 30s, liquor stores are closed on Sundays. Right. So we would literally have to drive the hour commute to New Hampshire across the state line if we wanted alcohol on Sundays. When they passed that law and opened alcohol, uh, opened liquor stores in Massachusetts on Sundays, it was like the second coming of Christ. It it was such a relief. (laughs) Hallelujah. Yeah. I guess what had happened, I don't guess, what had happened exactly is my alcoholism had become so rampant and I was making such poor decisions that I was asked to leave the house. So I became separated and I moved in with my brother and his house was full of other active alcoholics and addicts. So full, in fact, that I actually ended up sleeping in the boiler room in his basement on a futon because it was the only space left. It was like a frat house. At this point, we're all in our mid-30s. And there was always people there partying 24-7. I remember the last, the last night that I drank, which was October 3rd, 2009, my then wife asked me to come to the house to talk to her son and explain to her, her son that I was going to get help. So I did that. I went over to her house and I walked in and I sat down. Her son was the youngest of the three. 
two daughters and a son. And her son was about seven or eight years old at the time. And I sat down with him and I explained to him that I was never going to drink again. Now, as you know, and I know, never is a very dangerous word for an alcoholic, extremely dangerous. But I need to, to absolutely say this. As I was looking him in the eye and as I was telling him that I was never going to drink again, I was absolutely positively, unequivocally telling him the truth at that exact moment. I wasn't lying. I believed that I had the power to stop drinking, even though I had tried millions of times before and failed. So then I left the house after just telling a seven or eight-year-old boy that I'm never going to drink again. And I'm walking down the front steps to my car and all of a sudden I got the itch. And I got the craving and the phenomenon of craving came back and the obsession came back. And the next thing I knew, I was walking out of a liquor store with a 12 pack and a quart of Jose Cuervo. And I went home to that little boiler room basement and I drank it all. And I was alone. I was hiding it from my brother and his friends who were upstairs. And the last thing I remember before blacking out is I was tilting the end of the bottle, a Cuervo. I had it, you know, pouring it down my throat and I started sobbing like a baby, uncontrollable sobbing, not having any idea how I was going to stop, not having any idea what to do, hopeless, helpless. I must have passed out, obviously. I woke up the next morning, and that sense of dread and anxiety and remorse and guilt was like the weight of the world on my chest. The worst. It was crippling. And I started bawling again, uncontrollably, ugly crying. I don't know what I'm going to do. I actually... I wanted and wished for a gun because I wanted to put it in my mouth and pull the trigger. That's how, how helpless I had become. And here's where it gets interesting. I got up to go to the bathroom and had every intention of going back to bed for the day, passing out. I have no idea if I had to work that day. I didn't care. And as I was walking back to bed, a voice in my, in my head said, why don't you get down on your knees and pray? And I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I was born and raised Catholic. I denounced the Catholic religion right around the time I started drinking. No coincidences. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really like what the Catholic religion stood for. And part of it was just rebellion, just not wanting to go to church. But I did it. Some, for something not force me, but something, I, I listened to it for a second. And I got, I got down on my knees and I prayed. And I, as I was praying, I was praying to a God that at the time I did not believe in at all. I wasn't angry or resentful towards God or Catholicism. I simply just didn't believe in anything. Later that day, I, I called a friend and he and I went to a 12-step meeting together and I got a 24-hour chip and my journey began. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that the first two years of my sobriety were absolutely, it was, it was, I hated it. I was so 
uncomfortable, so restless, having to sit with my feelings, walking around with anxiety, not having any idea what to do with myself. And the reason it was so bad was no nobody's fault but my own. I, I wasn't doing any of the work that was suggested in the 12-step program I belonged to. I still didn't have any connection to a higher power or a God or something greater than myself. But I did go to meetings. That was the one suggestion I did take is, you know, I, I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, but I was the last one in the meeting, the first one to leave, didn't talk to anybody, sat in the back with my arms crossed, hat, baseball hat pulled down over my eyes, and wasn't listening to a word that was said. Did you and start working I the did, steps or just attending meetings? I just kept attending meetings. And at the time, I was also suggested that I seek outside therapy. So I did that. I went to a, a therapist who was well-versed in addiction. And then she said, why don't, why don't you join a home group? Here in Boston, we have home groups. I know it's different all over the country. And she said, why don't you join a home group that goes on commitments? And what commitments are here in Boston is, as a home group, on a Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, we'll go to a prison or we'll go to a detox as a group and we'll speak. Or we'll just go to other meetings and we'll be the incoming guests to speak. So I, I joined a group that went on commitments. And my group at the time was very active. We went on four to six commitments a week. So I started going to all of them. As I started going to these commitments, we would usually carpool together. So there'd be four or five, six of us crammed in a van or a car. And what I realized is we started having mini meetings on the way to the commitment and then many meetings on the way after the commitment. And I started building relationships. And I started identifying with people and their stories rather than comparing because as alcoholics, we love to compare, you know. That's right. I'm, he's better than I am. I'm better than him. I'm less than him. He's less than me. And, and I did that for years and years and years. When I started building this relationship, I started identifying. And the common thread with these identifications with these people that I was spending so much time with, you know, whether it was a female, someone who's in their 70s, somebody who had a lot more money than me, somebody who was from a different part of the country, we all had the same feelings as alcoholics and addicts. We all felt that desperation and helplessness when we were using. And then I realized the more work that these people did, the more hope that they felt, the more complete they felt, the more they felt like they were an active part of not only the 12-step groups, but also as society as a whole. You know, their, their morals and my morals started to turn and point north, and I started really realizing that there was hope if I could just kind of let go, hand it over, and start doing the work. So I did that. I, I, I got a sponsor. And I, I really, really, really had a hard time with believing in something greater than myself. You know, rebellion, stubbornness, pigheadedness, arrogance, all of these things were blocking me. I, I got this. I, I, I got to figure it out. I can do this. I don't need anybody else. I certainly don't need some guy sitting on a cloud in a, you know, in a white toga, which is the version of what I was raised as thinking yes. is God. And I was also taught that it was a very fearful God. 
You know, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to be punished and or sent to hell. And that was horrifying to learn as a child. I have since come to realize that I do have a higher power, which I'll get into in a minute. And I, but I've since come to realize that my higher power is a loving God and he does forgive and he does try to steer me in the right direction. And he's always there. So I drove my sponsor crazy, you know, because the word God is mentioned six or seven times in, in the 12 steps of the 12 step program I belong to. And I didn't believe in it. So finally, a, a friend of mine said, do you believe that I believe in something? And as arrogant and pigheaded as I was, I said, of course I do. It's cool. I, I'm not that arrogant. Of course, I believe you believe something. You know, I have friends who believe in Bigfoot. I, I don't. Whether Bigfoot's real or not, I don't doubt that they believe in it. So I really kind of got my head around that. And I started using the 12-step program as a higher power because I knew if I had gone, if I went to those meetings for that hour, hour and a half, and was surrounded by these people who were actively doing the work, there was a pretty good chance I wasn't going to drink. And the more I got involved in the steps, the more open my mind became and then right around the two-year mark, I had what's known as a spiritual awakening in the 12-step program that kind of rocked my world. I was at a meeting with a girl I was dating, and the meeting was in a church basement, as a lot of them are, and she had her three-year-old daughter there, and the daughter got super restless, as kids do. So I said, well, I don't, I'm going to take the daughter for a walk. You stay and enjoy the rest of the meeting. So we walked up the stairs, left the church basement, me and this little three-year-old girl. So now we're in the lobby of the church, so to speak. And I just for the heck of it, I tried to open the door to the, the main part of the church. And the little girl grabbed my hand and she pulled me into the church. And she said, isn't this beautiful? And I said, yeah, it absolutely is beautiful. And at that exact moment, I had an overwhelming sense of calm come over me something I'd never experienced. Of course, me being me, arrogant, pig-headed, narrow-minded, I tried to shrug it off. I'm like, this isn't happening. This isn't, this is my imagination. I watch too many movies. I read too many books. This is just, this is nothing. This doesn't mean anything. And the feeling persisted. It didn't get stronger. It didn't lessen. And the best way I can describe it, it was, it felt as if I was being embraced in a, in a hug a very safe, loving hug. And I looked up at the stained glass window and I knew at that point that my higher power, and I use the word higher power because I still don't like the G word, I don't like the, the God word. Hmm. My higher power had been there with me the entire time and I knew he always would be. And I also knew that my prayer had been answered the day after my first day of sobriety when I did get on my knees and I did pray to something that I didn't believe in. My prayer was answered. And it was, I, 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 I love the irony that I was actually in a Catholic church, right. not believing in religion. <laughs> and I have a spiritual awakening right. that op opened my world to, to spirituality. And, and I have to emphasize that for me personally. Whatever works for anyone else is great, but. Uh, Religion and spirituality are very, very different things for me. That I had a spiritual awakening in that church. And once that happened, 
I had such a sense of freedom because all of the stuff that I had been holding on to, whether it was the, the character defects or the feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, the anxiety, you know, the fears, the doubts, I could hand that over to somebody else or something else greater than myself. They were still going to be there. You know, me personally, I, I, I think I'll always have my character defects. The biggest difference now that I'm sober and have been sober for a while and practice the steps is I have the self-awareness enough to know what my character defects are. And more importantly, when they start to surface, now I have the tools, thanks to, thanks to the 12 steps, to kind of put those character defects in check, rein them in, and to make right any wrongs that may affect other people while those character defects had surfaced. So I dove headfirst into the steps and it was, you know, mentally exhausting. It was draining, but I knew I needed to do it. You know, I need, I needed to look at the person who I was, the person I, I brought into these, to these rooms, these 12 step meetings. And it's, it's similar to, not that I've ever been in the service, but I, I know it's similar to boot camp where, you know, the U S army or whatever branch you're in, they beat you down and then build you up from the ground up. And that's, that's what I had to do for myself with the 12 steps. I had to humble myself. I had to look at everything that I had done. And I had to share that with another person, my sponsor. And then I had to go out and I had to make amends to people I had wronged. And that was extremely humbling. But every time I made an amends or every time I did step work, I always, again, I felt that sense of freedom and lightness. Happy Sober Day, friends. For additional episodes of The Sobriety Diaries or to apply to be a guest on the show, check us out on the web at thesobrietydiaries.com or for our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash natekelly. And don't forget to rate and review our show on whatever platform you're listening on. It truly helps others to find the show. And in turn, we really could help save lives with just a few clicks. Thanks so much for downloading today's episode. And now back to our story. Thanks so much for listening today, friend. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in today's episode and how to connect with our guests. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, everyone.